Paul is writing there, but he's also praying. And the bottom line subject of his praying is that they will all be filled with love, that the Jews and the Gentiles will become one loving body. They had been one, uh, two bodies for so long with an ugly wall of hostility between them. This horrible, ugly barrier which Jesus, by his death, tore down. He began his prayer in verse 1 of chapter 3, gets sidetracked, and gets back to it in verse 14. Michael Plant was going to sail around the world in his yacht, Coyote. Just a few days out to sea, all contact with Plant was lost. His yacht was found, but he was never found. It was determined that he didn't have enough ballast. Ballast is heavy material placed in the hold of a ship to enhance stability. He was lost at sea simply because he was lacking below the waterline. Everything appeared fine, but it wasn't. Everything appears fine as I look out over this congregation this morning. But is it? How are you in your inner being? Paul, it seems to me, wants the Ephesians to have sufficient ballast as they sail into this brand new world they have entered in Christ. And I believe that that ballast, that powerful, powerful stabilizing force that he wants them to have is love. Strengthened with power through the Spirit in their inner being. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. That that could read just as well that Jesus is allowed to settle down and make his home in our heart. If I allowed him, if you allowed him to settle down and make his home in your heart, wouldn't that have almost everything to do with love? And then he prayed as he wrote that somehow they would be able to grasp the dimensions of Christ's love. How long, how wide, how high, how deep. We had a speaker in chapel at the college that, that said, he asked, how long is the love of Christ? And he answered, long enough to last forever. How wide is the, is the love of Christ? Wide enough to be everywhere. 
How high is the love of Christ? High enough to overlook all my sins and all my failures and all my mistakes. And how deep is the love of Christ? Deep enough to handle my greatest hurt, my greatest longings, and my deepest pain. And there are lots of directions I could go with this. But there's something I want to say to you. And I want to use this prayer of Paul to say it. I want to say some things about marriage. I want to say some things about family. And certainly a lot of what I'm going to say applies to ministry. And I'm going to say some things about the fact that I want you to thrive and prevail in all your relationships that people in Carroll would know you are his disciples because it's well known how you love each other. I was assigned this text at the college to preach the text in chapel. And this is the result. You're the second church that I've shared this message with. You might ask, David, what are your credentials to talk about such weighty matters? Well, I've been married to my wife for 56 years, and I still deeply love her. And I'm kind of like the farmer's insurance man. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. (laughs) And I truly care about your happiness and your success. So I'm going to focus on one aspect of love one definition of love and offer you ballast as you sail through life. And that is that love is kind. Easy to say, but what does it look like? For love is not love until it is seen. Talk about it all you want. But it isn't love until it is seen. And one of the ways it manifests itself most is in kindness. Do you remember the chicken soup for the soul books? In one of them, there was a story about a little boy that went into an ice cream parlor. Waitress came over, not having the best of days. He asked, how much is ice cream with chocolate sauce? She said, 50 cents. He bent down over his money and spent some The waitress said, come on, hurry up. He said, 
I'll take it plain. She brought him his ice cream. He ate it, left. She went over to his plate to clean up and, and, and remove it. And under his dish was a nickel and ten pennies, her tip. Now, folks, which one of those would you say you're more like? The waitress or the little boy? And what would your husband answer for you? What would your wife, what would your parents, what would your children, how would your neighbor answer? This is what I said in chapel, and I'm in it. This moment right now, regardless of what's happened in the past, you will never have a reason to be unkind again. Love is kind. It cares no matter what. Did you ever withhold love? Did you ever withhold affection? Did you ever withhold time? Did you ever not talk to someone because they had not performed up to the performance level that you have in store for them? You may not have ever told them. You may not even be able to admit it to yourself, but you know it is there. What does it say? It says, if. I'll love you if. A lot of people say that one way or another. That's why counselors are so busy. And it can manifest itself I'm sad to say I've heard even on one's honeymoon. There's another. I love you because. I love you because you're pretty. I love you because you're handsome. I love you because you're vibrant and strong. I love you because you have a good job and make lots of money. Things that are subject to radical change. And what if God only loved me if... I have never, ever performed well enough to earn God's love. What if God only loved me because of all the wonderful things I do and all the wonderful things I am? God loves me in spite of me. The last several months I was minister at Calvary Christian Church in Bellevue. Right after service on Sunday, this became a special part of my Lord's Day. Before I went out to eat with the family or anything, I jumped in my car with my portable communion set, and I would drive down to Plattsmouth and visit a couple named Frank and Fern. She had suffered a massive stroke. 
A big hospital bed took up all the living room. Frank and Fern had been married 52 years. And I marveled at the way Frank cared for Fern and how he loved her. As I watched him and listened to him, it was as if he was courting her. Can you visualize a man courting a woman lying motionless in a hospital bed that fills the living room? When the woman can give him absolutely nothing in return. I have never witnessed a greater example of romantic love. You think he felt like doing that every day? Probably not. But he made a choice. I just had a a, a rather traumatic uh, experience in that both of the remaining Sap brothers passed away within just a few days of each other. Um, you might or might not know that they have been wonderful benefactors to Nebraska Christian College. And it's basically because of Bill and Lee's money that we have a great ministry equipping center. <clears throat> Lee has his name on so many buildings, so many colleges and institutions in Nebraska. Impressive, impressive as it can be. But there's something that I want to tell you about Lee Sapp that impressed me so much more. During the last five years of his wife's life who had Alzheimer's, he went to see her every morning and he went to see her every night for five years. He told me one time what a good day was. He said, a good day is when she sees me coming. And she gets up and she starts running toward me and she holds up her hands and she, she didn't know him, but she knew him. You know what I'm saying? There's somebody that mm, maybe, and she would run to him and make these giddy noises and hold his hand. I'm impressed with his name on the side of our building at the college. But I'm far more impressed with how he loved his wife. You know, it may have been him that said it, I don't know, but some man was asked, why do you go see her every day? She doesn't know you. And he said, well, I, uh, she may not know me. She may not know who I am. But I still know who she is. You see, love is kind. It cares no matter what. Love is kind. It expresses itself. Love thrives on carefully chosen words. Words that say, I hear you and I care. 
Words are to love what blood is to the body. When blood stops, the body dies. When words stop, love dies, and resentment and suspicion are born. Later on in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Paul will say, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their need that it may benefit those who listen. What are unwholesome words? What are rotten words? That's what it means. Let no rotten words come out of your mouth. Well, some words I'm sure quickly come to your mind. But what about these? You never. You always. You are just like your mother. You tried that once and failed, remember? Where did you get that dress? What do you do around here all day anyway? What are wholesome words? I love you. Thank you. Here, let me help you. Please. Try that again. I know you can do it. You really look nice today. You look tired. Is there anything I can do to help you? Please tell me all about it because I have plenty of time. What would the world you live in look like? What would it sound like if there were only wholesome words that were spoken. And then what about the tendency that couples have of slaying their mate in public? And I have to say, I have noticed this more in women than men. Words that cut and slash and embarrass in public. You won't be in a relationship very long until you will have plenty of ammunition with which to slay your mate. You'll be sorely tempted to do it because you've been hurt. Don't do it. It has never accomplished anything, and it never will. Lady Astor and Winston Churchill had that kind of relationship in politics. Lady Astor never missed an opportunity to embarrass Churchill in public. One day she said out loud, Winston, if you were my husband, I would put arsenic in your tea. Uh, Churchill quickly responded, Lady Astor, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) On another occasion, Winston had obviously had too much to drink. Lady Astor seized the moment and said, Winston, you're drunk. He quickly replied, Lady Astor, you're ugly. But tomorrow I'll be sober. (laughs) 
Uh, folks, I have seen a wife slay her husband in public. And I have watched as all the life was taken out of him. I've watched a wife praise her husband in public and marvel as he seems to just come alive and grow and emerge. We men may appear macho and strong, and we don't need very much, thank you. We can pretty much handle it ourselves. But I can tell you, we have a tremendous need to be admired, especially by our wives. Boxer Jack Dempsey's wife was asked what it was like being married to a boxer. She said, oh, I'm not married to a boxer. I'm married to a champion. Love thrives on carefully chosen words. Love is kind. It listens. It listens. I believe there are lots of people who would get well if they only thought they had someone in their life that would listen, put down the paper, turn off the TV, get rid of the phone, and listen. Massive amounts of love are conveyed through active listening. Back in the early days when I was formulating a seminar on the family, I heard on, uh, I watched on TV a program about a woman who was a nurse and she worked with terminally ill patients. And she was relating how if they could just get these terminally ill people to talk and enter into dialogue, that there's a certain dynamic that seemed to take place in the last the last whatever time they had left was quality time. She said, we had a 14-year-old girl. We couldn't get her to talk. Anytime the conversation got a little close, she would put up a roadblock or take it a different direction. So we didn't know what she was feeling, what she was thinking. She said, one night when I was on call, this girl put on her call light, I went in, turned on the light, went over to her and asked her what I could do to help her. And she said, the girl said, well, nurse, I've just been thinking, what if this hospital caught on fire? What would happen to me? And she said she told her why we would get you out okay. We have procedures for that. We practice that all the time. You don't have anything to worry about. We'd get you out. And she did a little more small talk, checked some things, and then said good night. went over and turned off the light. She said she had gone about three or four steps down the hall when she realized that she had heard something not with her ear but with her heart. She turned around, went back in, turned on the light, went over and reached down to the, to, to the girl and the girl reached up to her 
And she said she just sobbed, sobbed on her, her chest. Because, you see, she had heard her say with her heart the only way she could say, I know I'm dying and I'm scared to death. Can you help me? And I told that story in Huron, South Dakota. And after I'd spoken that night, a little lady came up to me and handed me a piece of paper. It was circular, which caught my interest because I don't know that I ever received a circular note. But on it were these words. If we listen with our hearts, we'll hear the teardrops before they start. Love is kind. It listens. Now, guys, it's your turn. Remember this. When a woman obviously wants to talk, underline obviously, she won't be asking you to fix her, correct her, psychoanalyze her, or give her a five-step plan to take care of whatever's going on. She will be asking you to hear her. Often, that's all she will need from you is to hear her, to hear her with your heart. A recent study concludes that a leading indicator And I believe they're on to something with that. Listen to this, guys. Cover of the Eldridge's book, Captivating. Everyone was once a girl. She wants to be swept into romance, to play an irreplaceable role in a great adventure, to be the beauty of the story. Those desires are far more than child's play. They are the key to the feminine heart. Love is It listens, and then it tends to business. Love is kind. Gives gifts. Gifts that say, I have paid attention. Gifts that say, I care. Gifts that say, I really love you. Gifts that say, if I had it all to do over again, I would still pick you. And they don't have to be big things. They can be little things that become gigantic. And now, to you young people and single who will more than likely one day be married. Young people, when you meet that someone who begins to occupy a lot of your time and a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your dreams, and they're definitely getting under your skin. Before you give away anything 
precious before you allow anything to get serious, please remember that an old guy asked you or told you to ask these questions. Will this person care no matter what? Will this person talk to me? Will this person listen to me down deep in their heart? Will this person give me things that will always make me know that I'm still first place in their life, right behind their relationship to the Lord? There are other questions, of course. I hope you'll remember those. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. And if we were filled to the measure of the fullness of God, what is Paul wanting for the Ephesians? He is wanting them to be full of love. Of love. Now, if you were to ask me, David, out of all your reading and all your searching for things to share with people, about their marriage, their family, and this topic that you've just talked about, what would it be? Well, this would be right up there in the top one or two. Written by a doctor, Dr. Richard Selzer, in a book he called Notes in the Art of Surgery. I stand by the bedside where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy clownish. The tiny twig of the facial nerve has been severed. She will be thus from on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. But nevertheless, to remove that little, that tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband is in the room with her, and together they dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always look like this? She asks. Yes, I say. It will. It's because the little nerve was cut. She nods her head and becomes silent. And then her young husband speaks. Well, he said, I kind of like it. I think it's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is, and I lower my gaze, because one is not bold when he encounters a God. 
unmindful of me, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I, standing so close, can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers. And I remembered that the gods in ancient Greece appeared as mortals. And I pause and I let the wonder come in. I don't know if the doctor knows the theological wallop of that or not. The Bible says that no one has seen our God at any time. But it also says if people like you and I love each other, are faithful to each other, committed to each other, that the world will be able to see God in us. I know of no picture it needs to see any more than that. Love is kind.